재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Time now for our International News Digest segment. We're going to get some analysis now on some of the major stories around the world. Uh, we have a pair of experts lined up first. Joining us from Queensland University of Technology, uh, we have Professor Kerry Sadiq. Hello. Good evening, Henry. Good evening, Professor. Uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Pam- Panama Papers revelations, obviously we have various officials from around the world trying to get some sense of it and maybe uh, offer up some countermeasures. Uh, we'd love to get your analysis on what's going on in the uh, EU so far. Uh, could you tell us more about these new tax evasion measures being pushed uh, by various members there and what kind of uh, legislation could be a result of those efforts? Well, what the EU is talking about doing is a very broad anti-tax avoidance package. So it has a number of aims. Part of it is to prevent aggressive tax planning, so looking at changes to the substantive law. But another part of it is boosting tax transparency, so actually getting the information out there. And thirdly, they're wanting to create a level playing field for all businesses in the EU. So they'll be looking at introducing legislation or amending the current legislation uh, and introducing legally binding measures to block some of the most common methods used by companies to avoid paying tax, uh, but also looking at measures for the member states to actually share tax-related information on multinationals operating in the EU. From what you've been able to observe so far, Professor, do you believe uh, these proposals have some teeth behind them? They would, uh, as you pointed out, uh, increase the transparency that is needed uh, to try and get a handle on all of these, um, I guess the political term, these millionaires and billionaires uh, running off with their own money and not paying their fair share? Oh, look, I think it's a very complex issue and there's a, a, a range of taxpayers undertaking different types of activities ranging from a, ve- a very aggressive tax planning right through to tax evasion, which is completely illegal. But whether these methods of uh, addressing uh, these kind of activities will be effective depends on their implementation and governments actually enforcing them. But every little step is one step towards the right direction. So transparency is actually a crucial part of identifying aggressive tax planning practices by large companies and ensuring fair tax competition. One of the things that the EU is now talking about, which they've just announced in the last uh, few days, actually on the 12th of this month, is new transparency rules which will actually enable citizens to scrutinise tax behaviours of certain multinational entities. Now, there are limitations to that. Uh, For example, disclosures will be limited to activities in Europe, but it is a start and it's a step in the right direction. And we'd love to get your analysis also on, of course, what many people would feel is a trigger to all of this and these uh, Panama Papers leaks. Uh, Some people feel that this is just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of the high-profile names that have already uh, been released. Uh, Is this just the beginning or do you think we've pretty much felt the major impact from those initial uh, leaks and revelations? 
No, I think it will be ongoing. For example, last week in Paris, there was actually a special project meeting of what is known as JITSIC. And JITSIC is the Joint International Tax Shelter Information and Collaboration Network. So that involved 28 countries getting together to talk about these Panama Papers and what they're going to do about it. So that's actually unprecedented international inquiry into these activities. And the chairman of that is actually Chris Jordan, who is the Commissioner of Taxation in Australia. And he, he's very forthright in what he says about tackling this problem. But we've also seen countries like the uh, U.S. recently coming out and encouraging U.S. citizens and companies that may have money in offshore accounts to actually contact the IRS and uh, be proactive in disclosing this information. So we're seeing joint efforts and we're also seeing efforts at national level. So it may not get the media attention that mm. we've seen over the last few weeks, but it's going to be ongoing. What do you think the implications are to these well-known tax havens, such as obviously uh, the origin of this, the Panama uh, area, or, or other offshore havens like the Cayman Islands, which was so prominent uh, in years past? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, what we've seen is that a lot of these jurisdictions previously have fought the idea of uh, releasing information. And in the tax world, we actually refer to them as secrecy jurisdictions rather than tax havens mm. because everything is bound up in secrecy. But uh, as far as their own economies go, it's probably not going to have a huge effect. You know, a country like Panama, we're looking at a population of about $4 million. Uh, the legal services related to corporations represent less than 1% of GDP. Um, yet the Cayman Islands is another example which is often mentioned, yet it only has a population of $60,000. Its primary source of income is indirect taxation. So uh, these secrecy jurisdictions are starting to realise that they really need to do something about uh, their secrecy laws. Uh, Cayman Islands is doing something about it, and very recently, uh, obviously, Panama mm. has started talking about doing something about it as well. This timing coincides where um, many of us around the world, our listeners, people in various countries are trying to get their documents uh, together and pay taxes. Never uh, in, an enjoyable experience uh, for most people. And it's become quite a populist issue among politicians as well. And some people say this is just a, a cat and mouse game and the wealthy are always going to be able to uh, find some ways to beat the system, so to speak. But the other other underlying concerns is not just the, the fat cats that are being able to get away with this, but maybe uh, in terms of national security, uh, criminal organizations, or even terrorist groups that also are using these methods to subvert the system. Those are also major concerns, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's something that the Panama, Panama Papers has actually revealed. An incredible amount of documentation uh, was released. And we've had incidences previously like the LuxLeaks, but the amount of information revealed then was tiny compared to what we've seen now. LuxLeaks was 4.4 gigabytes, if you want to talk about it in computer terms. Uh, but the current leak, we're talking 2.6 terabytes of information. 
so a huge amount of information to go through and they're revealing all sorts of activities like I said from aggressive tax planning and sometimes taxpayers have legitimate reasons for uh, having bank accounts in these countries subsidiaries etc right through to criminal organizations and terrorist groups using them this has become now part of the public consciousness of leaks, as you point out, the 2.8 terabytes, and this dwarfs anything in the past, whether it's uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks or uh, the Snowden NSA revelations or even the previous ICIJ leaks. Uh, th- these hackers or these people who are able to infiltrate will probably be able to uh, to get more information to the public. Has this, at least in the context of, of tax evasion, um, do you feel the co- the conversation has now taken a turn and uh, there will be a very long-term concerted effort to try and address this issue or is this really going to be something that uh, we really don't know whether uh, there will be a fundamental change yet? I think what we're seeing is a fundamental change in attitude. I think the general public didn't realize what a significant problem this really is. So suddenly the public is aware of it. And as you said, we're all completing our own tax returns. We're having a look at how much we're paying. And then we're seeing reports that the very wealthy individuals and large multinational entities are paying very little in tax. And we all know that what makes the world go around is money. Everyone has to budget. Countries have to budget. So if we're talking about sustainability, and we could go back to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, ending poverty, Mm -hmm. ending hunger, uh, making sure everyone gets an education, that all costs money. Someone has to pay for it. So I think it's a fundamental change in attitude where individuals and the general public are understanding the significance of the problem. I'm sure many of our listeners are hoping that uh, certainly that uh, uh, fundamental change uh, does happen. Professor Sadiq, thank you very much for joining us. appreciate your time. Thank you, Henry. Professor Kerry Sadiq, uh, accountancy professor at Queensland University of Technology. Uh, We're going to turn to uh, matters of international affairs, particularly the tensions in the South China Sea. And to help us understand the situation better, we have from the University of Hull's War Studies Department, Professor Caroline Kennedy. Hello. Hello there. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Uh, Can can we get your analysis and assessment on some of the latest updates uh, in terms of what's going on in the South China Sea? Uh, We read the headlines. We know that tensions are rising. Uh, China seems to be building up. Uh, The Americans also seem to be uh, making moves. The recent news about the closer military cooperation with the Philippines. Uh, Is there legitimate cause for concern here? Oh, there is legitimate cause for concern. The risk of conflict in the South China Sea is significant. That doesn't mean that it will happen and we can come back to how it might be avoided. But certainly if you look at Chinese ambition, it is competing with Taiwan, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei and the Philippines. And of course there is the United States which is expected to act really, if you like, as the counterweight to China in this hugely important area. And I think it's worth noting, you know, some of the figures that this area is worth $5.3 trillion, uh, $3 billion worth of transit. So there's trillions of dollars at stake for the great powers and the medium-sized powers here. So, 
in a nutshell, China has been moving from what we would call a brown navy force to a blue navy force. That is signaling that it wishes to have power projection capabilities throughout this crucial area. And over the last few years, over the last three years, Beijing has reclaimed nearly 3,000 acres of water, and of course no one owns the seas. Mm. So for a United States that is dedicated to freedom of navigation, to freedom of the seas, China's actions are seen as provocative. You believe then the potential of a military confrontation is certainly, I guess, in terms of probability, increasing, but not necessarily inevitable. Uh, What could be, I guess this is just gaming the uh, situation, but what could be a potential scenario where we could see an actual clash? Well, you see, part of the issue is, and we'll have heard about it in the general news, that China has really come late to the game of building the artificial islands and taking possession um, of spaces, for example, the Spratly Islands, Mm -hmm. where other countries like Vietnam have historically um, placed people, material resources on, on, on these strategic outposts. But they're very, very important, um, not least because basically those powers who wish to, if you like, take resources in this resort-rich area, claim populations, can then make a claim that they can have exclusive economic zones. So what we're seeing at the moment is China, as we know, building airstrips, building military facilities, which they claim to be predominantly civilian, building runways. One would have to ask the question why. And if you look at Chinese actions, they've reclaimed almost, as I said, 3,000 acres of water, but also extended their reach by about 620 miles. Now, this would indicate to those of us interested in geostrategy, you know, some fairly substantial um, ambitions in terms of resource, but also in terms of reach. And it would signal to me, certainly, that China wishes to be a significant maritime as well as continental power. Now, that runs headlong in to the claims of more medium-sized powers like Vietnam, like Malaysia, like the Philippines, as you pointed out. And the Philippines certainly will rely on the United States to protect um, some of those interests. Of course, we've got to think about the global economy as well. The United States has a major interest in preventing any of the various disputes in the South China Sea from escalating militarily. So I would see any conflict would arise from increasingly crowded spaces, you know, thousands of vessels navigating these seas. Um, and remember, we've been here before. The Chinese have, ac- have accused on numerous occasions the United States Navy of violating its mm. um, EEZ. Now, these issues have always been resolved diplomatically. So what we're looking at really is having perhaps a form of international arrangement, you know, beyond international law, which is problematic, the uh, ONCLOS agreement, to early warning systems, and perhaps even for your listeners, there is a substantial uh, call now for countries, medium-sized powers like South Korea, to become, you know, invested in the region as an honest broker. So I think 
in international relations terms, we're looking at early warning systems, conflict um, avoidance, and really a system of norms and shared aspirations, if that is possible. When I am looking at some of the uh, military analysis of the situation and uh, the interesting comment you made about uh, the shift from a brown navy to a blue navy and China uh, projecting their power, it seems like though in terms of military might, uh, even as it stands now and you see all the infographics and, and the figures coming out how the U.S. still spends more on defense than most of the other contenders combined but if out of all those branches the army the air force um, the navy is where the u.s is still by far the supreme um, force in the world there's still a long ways to go for anybody to believe that china could could challenge the united states in that area and, and china is still very mindful of that right absolutely and that is um, a strategic advantage that the united states absolutely still possesses and so we don't need to be alarmist about um coming from britain i know this only too well you know a naval arms race which is destabilizing nevertheless um in an age of austerity and we know that president obama has been roundly criticized for not acting more assertively in the, the south china sea and at a time when china is signaling you know profound i think um Ambition. If you think, for example, of the Chinese investments um, in ports in Pakistan, this is all an indicator. Um, you know, some three to four billion dollar projects. Uh, you know, these these indicate that the future of, I think, conflict will probably be naval rather than land. Hmm. It is an uncertain period. Uh, You mentioned the economic reasons behind this. Uh, Certainly many countries in this age of austerity are grappling with those problems. Uh, Other hotspots and and troubled regions, uh, tension all around. In the South China Sea, what do you think we can expect to see in the coming months? Um, How do you think the situation can or will potentially evolve? I think what will happen is that um, states such as the United States and indeed my own country of Britain, you know, they will want China to abide by uh, international rulings such as the Court of Arbitration ruling. You know, our own British Minister of State, you know, who's responsible for this area of the world, you know, you know, demanded that when the ruling comes from the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, that China, you know, must abide by that ruling. And in particular, you know, if the claim, which is widely expected to go in favour of the Philippines, um, if China does not accept this, then I think tensions will rise in that kind of very important strategic um, waterway of the world. And I think the, the problem is that... Even though, for example, Britain's relationships with China has warmed, um, Britain, for example, is saying that we don't suspend our critical faculties when it comes to China's human rights. And there's another issue here, um, which is, of course, we are looking at the South China Sea as an area, you know, we, we all believe in diplomacy and great power politics as realists, where external actors you know, will actually um, decide the fate of this region. But I would point to something very interesting. There are growing numbers of civilians 
whose lives and livelihoods are at stake across um, these seas. If you think about the considerable number of um, civilians who now are making their homes on these disputed spaces, mm. that will actually have a major influence. So, for example, if you think about um, recognition of an EEZ under uh, law, the ability of um, an island to sustain a civilian population and economic activity is vital to determining whether it can claim a 200 nautical mile exclusion zone. Now, I think that China, Vietnam, is playing this game very, very carefully. Mm. So I would look not just at the, the warships and what's happening. I'd look at where people are, what the great powers or medium-sized powers are doing to sustain these populations, and what claims might then be made. Because, of course, remember, if these islands cannot sustain a civilian population, then they're legally considered rocks. Right. Now, reclaiming is not enough for an EEZ, but nevertheless, the legal nuances of what China and Vietnam might be able to claim could inevitably give rise to the kind of ten tensions over the indigenous people and over settlers. Yeah, very interesting so, indeed. it's not just hard military and crude power we're looking at. I think the longer-term game is far more subtle and interesting than that. Indeed. Professor, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your analysis. It's a pleasure.